Anchored is a production of the Classic Learning Test, based in Annapolis, Maryland, reconnecting knowledge and virtue. Visit us at cltexam.com. Hello, and welcome back to the CLT offices. You are listening to a special edition segment of Anchored, featuring talks given at the 2021 Higher Ed Summit in Annapolis by educators and intellectuals from prominent institutions across the U.S. This episode features Spencer Clavin. Spencer Clavin is the assistant editor of the Claremont Review of Books and the American Mind at the Claremont Institute. He has a PhD in classics and is also the host of the Young Heretics podcast. If this is your first time listening to us, I'd like to take a little bit of time to explain what Anchored is. This is a podcast where our CEO, Jeremy Tate, engages in conversations with leading thinkers on issues at the intersection of education and culture. We appreciate your feedback, so please rate and review this episode and send any questions or comments to Anchored at cltexam.com. Don't forget, our upcoming CLT exam will be held on December 4th. The CLT is an online college entrance exam for 11th and 12th graders. To learn more, visit our website at cltexam.com. Now, without any further ado, let's get on with the conversation. Jeremy, I'm just glad that this time when you said my name, I was in the room. Last night, Jeremy kept kindly saying things about me, and I kept being outside, like getting a beer or something. Um, what, what an amazing event this has been, right? I mean, thank you guys so much. What a beautiful introduction, and, and really beautifully done. Jeremy and everybody at CLT, Soren, Ashley, Tracy, I could, I could go on and on, all the speakers who have gone before me. Um, there's something so moving about seeing CLT as what I've heard called the great convener. I mean, the enormous range of people that you've brought together here. You know, uh, Protestants and Catholics, right? People from every faith, people from every race, people from all sorts of backgrounds, people who in the kind of big political partisan world out there aren't supposed to be in the same room together. And I think it's really beautiful, Jeremy, that you've brought them in the same room together. But what's even more beautiful is that it doesn't even seem to occur to you that they shouldn't be in the same room together. (laughs) And that's how it ought to be. Um, There's so obviously something that brings us together, and that's love of the true, the good, and the beautiful, and the hunger that people have for that. It's something that I've been incredibly humbled to experience, as, as Jeremy mentioned You know, I started a podcast that I thought would be the most obscure podcast in the world. It was on purpose. I said, I'm just going to talk about, you know, the stuff that I love. And lo and behold, there is this enormous appetite for something that people aren't getting. Um, So I have a kind of a tough job tonight. I I have to give a toast. And I understand that that means I have to maybe be funny. Um, (laughs) And I know it definitely means that I have to be brief. I, I am going to give a toast, but I just wanted to note, Jeremy doesn't know this, I, I was the Toastmaster in college. Uh, that was my official title. And I found that although typically at the end of toast you're supposed to drink at the, at the very end, uh, I have scientific evidence that I'm funnier and more interesting the more you drink. So please <laughs> drink while I'm talking, and, uh, and we'll also drink at the end. In 2012... A magazine called Latham's Quarterly published a collection of marginalia. So these are notes that medieval monks and scribes had squeezed into the margins of the holy books that they were copying. 
And we've probably all seen these. They're called illuminated manuscripts, these sprawling works of literary art. And they're great thickets of color, meaning, and light. These nettled letters that bloom and bleed outward into ornate forms and images, profusions of gold and rich ink. Now, the Psalters, the Bibles, and the books of ours that got this treatment were never meant to be captured and splayed motionless in museums. They were meant to be lifted on high in front of congregations and solemnly read aloud. They come from the kind of culture that believes in the living word, the kind of language that had to be reverently handled because of its awesome power. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. He has cast down the mighty from their seat and sent the rich empty away. Those declarations have a cosmic significance that glows like a nuclear reactor just behind the page. It's the kind of energy and life that can sink its roots into your soul and grow there just the way the letters grow like ivy over the page. Tolle lege, pick me up and read. These books were alive. They were also really, really hard to make. You know, one page could take years if it was extra fancy. And that was the work of our suffering heroes, these monks who labored in their cold cells to keep the fire of the word alive. It was backbreaking work, and we know that because they told us so. Here is one of the marginalia, the marginal notes from that Laffin's quarterly collection, and I quote, the scribe has the toughest job of all. The work is drudgery, and you get a stick neck from writing six hours, day in and day out. Here's another, while I wrote, I froze, and what I could not write by the beams of the sun, I finished by candlelight. This one is more succinct. Oh, my hand. <laughs> Finally, here's a sentiment with which I think any doctoral candidate or college applicant can relate. Now I've written the whole thing. For Christ's sake, give me a drink. <laughs> These are men to whom we owe an incalculable debt of gratitude. Though if we ever thank them, it will not be in this life. There was no printing press yet, and anyway, no machine could do what these monks did. But it was hardly a glamorous occupation. In the ancient world, writing commentary in the margins of great books could come with a certain degree of prestige. The second century BC grammarian, Aristarchus of Samothrace, left us copious annotations on the poems of Homer, which still inform scholarship to this day. But our monks, went nameless to their graves, at least insofar as their marginal comments are concerned. If their identities are recorded elsewhere, we have no way of linking them to these records that they left us of their long and grueling work. Instead, they preserved masterpieces with other names attached to them, not just sacred works, but Homer, Polybius, Thucydides, Virgil, even Aristarchus himself. Those men live on, thank God. 
But the men who shielded our little cannon from destruction left no trace except these bursts of character in the margins. Time, which claims everything in the end, would soon claim then. And they seemed to know that, too. Here's another note that one of them left behind. This is sad. Oh, little book, a day will come in truth when someone over your page will say, the hand that wrote it is no more. I almost titled this speech, In Defense of Ashes. And I refrained because I didn't want to give my good friend Jeremy a heart attack. I know what it's like to organize these things, and he's chosen a really good theme. Tradition is not the worship of ashes, but the preservation of fire. The last thing that you need when you're putting one of these things together is from, for some smart aleck little podcaster kid to come in and mess up your frickin' theme. <laughs> and besides that, I agree. All of us here are in the business of life, not death. We have seen firsthand that classic literature is in some stack of moldy books somewhere. It is a way of life, as warm and companionable as a late night around the fire with dear friends. The power that glowed behind the pages of those illuminated manuscripts is still alive, and at its strongest, it can conquer death. I enter the ancient courts of ancient men, wrote Machiavelli from exile. Received by them with affection, I feed on the food which only is mine and which I was born for, where I am not ashamed to speak with them. W.E.B. Du Bois knew what that was like. Across the color line I move, arm and arm with Balzac and Dumas, he wrote. I summon Aristotle and Aurelius and what soul I will, and they all come graciously with no scorn nor condescension. The point of passing these books on isn't to freeze them in amber or lock them behind some grand tower wall. They are grand enough in themselves without our selfish pretensions to get in their way. It's the world that supplies the barriers, the forbidding, and the thou shalt nots. It's the world that says, this is too hard or too dangerous for you to read, or this wasn't written for you, or people like you don't read books like these. Our job, our sacred duty, is to knock down those tower walls wherever we find them, to let people into that great hall where Shakespeare and Cicero and Machiavelli and Du Bois walk together with no shyness or fear. The Catholic martyr St. Thomas More hoped that not only his beloved family, but even his jailers and persecutors would meet merrily in heaven. We hope that all our students, rich and poor, black and white, truck drivers and homeschoolers and cops and farmers will meet merrily now, along with the truest and wisest companions our humanity has to offer them. And we hope that for the rest of their lives and thereafter, they will be a little less alone. So yes, not the worship of ashes, but the preservation of fire. Still, 
When I read that quote, I couldn't help but think about those dang monks. I couldn't help but imagine them at their drudgery, cold and cramping and thinking about beer or about death. I don't think it seemed like the preservation of fire to them then. I think it probably seemed like a job, something they had to get on with. And I can't help thinking about how they slipped heartbreakingly out of our grip and into oblivion. And not just them, either. I think about everything we lost along the way. The tens of plays of Aeschylus that didn't make it. The lost operas of Monteverdi. The dialogues of Aristotle. The towering shelves upon shelves of human thought burned to nothing in the library of Alexandria. As a PhD student, I spent years poring over the work of Philodemus, an Epicurean philosopher of the Augustan period, whose work survives only on papyrus charred by the volcanic explosion of Mount Vesuvius. And like so many before me, I stared at those hunks of barely decipherable wreckage, those books burned not by man, but by nature. And I tried to rescue one more phrase or idea one more letter even, from the ashes. Some things survive. Many are lost. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. We have to come to terms, all of us here, with the fact that almost everything is against us. Volcanoes explode. Libraries burn. Monks die. And so will we. And then there are the things we bring upon ourselves. There are the bonfires of the vanities, the banned books, the heartless bureaucracies that look at human children and see nothing but another widget to produce another dollar. Today, we are against not a papal bull or a list of forbidden works from the Vatican, but an entire class of little would-be Savonarolas, deleting books from Amazon or halting their release because they don't conform to the right pieties. We have teachers who gloat online about removing Homer from their curricula because they're telling the lie that he's rooted in white supremacy. And then we have standardized testing, which, as everyone here well knows, sucks up young students' precious time by forcing them to train obsessively at reading lifeless prose in a lifeless way. The perpetuators of this regime think they are exempt from the criticism they heap on people like Savonarola, because unlike him, they are ostensibly secular. But they are the same old gatekeepers as ever, intoning the same old thou shalt nots. That book is too difficult or too dangerous for you to read. This wasn't written for you. People like you don't read books like these. And so that's probably why I wanted to call this speech In Defense of Ashes. Because when I grieve over Alexandria or Philodemus or the endless drumbeat of the thou shalt nots, I think again about those monks. I think about how maybe they didn't want to keep going, but they did it anyway. And maybe not in that moment out of passion or excitement exactly, but out of devotion, out of belief in the cause, no matter how hopeless it seemed, because it was the only cause worth anything. 
Where else shall we go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. The ash-strewn history of our fallen world is full of valiant men and women just like these, copyists and statesmen and school teachers who gave of their sweat and blood and flesh rather than see the great flame extinguished altogether. Most of them are unknown to us, but some of them are known. We know about Cicero, who up until the moment of his death at the hands of the nascent empire was writing plans for a republic that would inspire John Adams in the building of this American nation. We know about St. Thomas More, who wrote his last letter to his daughter Margaret using coal before going to his death. We know about a woman named Mrs. Begley, who told the scholar and essayist Daniel Mendelssohn the following about her experience after surviving the Shoah. Here is what Mrs. Begley said. She said, I'll tell you something, because I remember it quite clearly. The first thing that happened after the war was over and things got a little normal, the first thing was that the actors and theater people who were still alive got together and put on, in Polish, a production of Sophocles' Antigone. After he defected from the Soviet underground, Whitaker Chambers, even in his darkest mood, wrote of snatching a fingernail of a saint from the rack or a handful of ashes from the faggots to preserve for a better day when a few men begin again to dare to believe that there was once something else. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust, and yet some things remain. There is something that keeps the monk copying, that takes even a dead coal and turns it into a letter of love from father to daughter, something that opens the theaters again after the war is ended, that compelled chambers not to leave everything behind, but to grab that one sliver of what went before, that one handful of ash. We rarely know why or what will come of it, but the fire has a life of its own, and it wants to keep burning. It will keep burning, and we and our students and our friends and everyone who went before us, named and nameless, poet and martyr, the obscure school teacher and the famous philosopher, Machiavelli and the monks, will meet merrily around its warmth and its light. Until then, we preserve everything we can, and we keep the light alive on our best and our worst days. That is our business, the business of everyone here. There is no better or higher thing to do. Here's to the ashes, and here's to the fire. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of Anchored. If you enjoyed it, be sure to subscribe and share it with your friends and colleagues. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time.